Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of The Europhile. We are incredibly excited to be here. I'm here with Donatien Rue. <laughs> Close enough. Hi, everyone. It's Donatien Rui, and I'm really excited for the first episode as well. There's going to be a lot of back and forth about my inability to do French pronunciation. Maybe by the 10th episode, we'll get it close to what it is. So today we're going to talk about two big topics. One is Qatargate, and the other is tanks. And we'll start with Qatargate, which is the scandal that is really roiling Brussels right now. It has caused a real firestorm in the EU. Donna, you have been dissecting this very closely. What is going on here? The reason I'm particularly interested in this story is, one, it's a serious stain on the institutions, but two, it really is your old school bribery scandal and influence thriller. Like bags have, of cash. Oh, of literally them. bags of cash, gifts, code names in the investigation, alleged money laundering, different intelligence services involved across the EU. Overall, they've retrieved $1.6 million in cash. So it's not it's not a pocket change. So what happened? Here we have a couple foreign actors involved in allegedly influence operations. This is an ongoing investigation, so we do need to be careful about... It's all allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to be careful. But what were they trying to do? Influence official resolutions, declarations in the European Parliament, uh, potentially name members of the European Parliament, which we're going to shorten to MEP, going forward to relevant committees... Who are we talking about here? As the name suggests, Qatargate, there's Qatar, but the investigation started by being focused on Morocco. So these are the main countries that are involved in this investigation. And inside the institutions, we're really talking about current and former MEPs. Some of their assistants, they're all with the socialists and Democrats. So we're going to talk about this later, but it's a real problem for that party. This includes one of the VPs, vice presidents of the European Parliament, Eva Kaili, and a couple NGOs and their names. You cannot make this up. One is called Fight Impunity and the other one is called No Peace Without Justice. So that's really rich and really adds to the flavor of the story. Where this started, I'm going to be very brief here, actually goes back to 2021, where the Belgian police received a tip from intelligence services across Europe. Those countries are not named, but they're friendly intelligence services. So the tips initially started in 2021, but we really learned about all of this in December 2022, which was where the arrests and all the seizures began. The press releases the story. The Belgian press had been made aware before that. And then through December, offices are sealed, computers and phones are seized. And now we're, we're seeing the fallout of this story. Preliminary investigation starts into influence efforts within the European institutions, and the focus, as I said earlier, is first on Morocco, then goes on to Qatar. For a couple of different reasons, Morocco is trying to influence decisions, and some of the resolutions on issues of interest, for example, Western Sahara, which is a strange issue that keeps popping its head all the time, and Qatar is more to improve its image on some issues like workers' rights as we've all discussed going up to the so, so both these countries, so Qatar, Morocco, have a lot of business in front of the European Union. Am I right in saying that this is, seems like a classic bribery scandal where they are coming in trying to buy top members of the European Parliament to just sort of you know, get what they want at that level? That is it. At least from what we know of the investigation so far, it was really to work with key actors inside the institution to get visibility in front of key hearings to get better 
content in resolutions, or at least, let's say, if there was potentially going to be a resolution that was negative towards one of those countries to dampen that negativity. This has been shocking in Brussels. I mean, I think a number of people were like, you're going to buy off European members of parliament and you're not targeting the commission or other aspects, which generally seen as having more power. But what has been the political fallout? You mentioned that this is namely targeting the socialist bloc within the European parliament. I assume they are, are getting a lot of political flack. But has this also prompted uh, some reforms uh, within the EU or what is being talked about right now and how they respond to this? It has prompted calls for reform. The president of the parliament, Roberto Mazzola, is proposing a plan for some reforms around anti-bribery uh, inside the European parliament. There are some positive aspects of these reforms. Some watchdogs, for example, Transparency International, are saying it's not nearly enough, which is understandable. I mean, the the sheer amount of the things that are being seized. There's also, for example, alleged uh, attempt to infiltrate one of the inquiries that focus on Pegasus and spyware. So it goes pretty deep. And I think they're really worried about the impact it has on their credibility as an institution. Because the European Parliament has evolved so much since the first time there were elections in 1979 for members of the European Parliament. And they've worked so hard to be co-equal institutions. And this is a huge setback. So there have been calls for, for reform. There's I think other things that we see that are more on the positive side is this is a great example of law enforcement cooperation across Europe. I think they should take that as a model. Let me, let me just ask you about that, because this does strike me as a real challenge now for, for Belgium. And you're a Belgian citizen yeah. from, from Belgium that, you know, in the United States, so we have the United Nations here in New York. The United States monitors for corruption of, of other officials. There's been famous, infamous scandals of foreign diplomats and major scandals broken by uh, U.S. law enforcement or revealed by U.S. law enforcement. Belgium is a smaller country than the United States, and you have these massive European institutions. And that it's is it up to the Belgian police now to really monitor them? Is that going to be something that they're going to be up to the task to, to do? I actually had the same question. I, I'm not entirely sure what the answer is. So far, yes, because they are in Brussels and therefore this is in their jurisdiction. But if we're serious about enforcement of the new rules that they're trying to put in place, and let me be clear, there's not a ton of suggestions from the plan that's on the table for serious judicial enforcement. Currently, that would fall on Belgian authorities. What's interesting in this case is that other intelligence services across Europe were involved. So we could see in the future better cooperation between the two. I don't see how we move away from Belgian authorities being in charge of this, though, because that is on their soil. There's not a diplomatic force field around the institutions. And the people who have been arrested, because that's another piece of the fallout, they are in Belgian jail right now. So going forward here, I mean, one of the things that it, it strikes me is that this is sort of a sign of the maturation in some ways of the European Union that's now having real sort of adult style yes, scandals. they have real corruption. <laughs> real corruption, well done. real scandals. What do you think this says about the EU uh, in general? Well, one, I think it highlights the role of the parliament in particular in foreign affairs. It's been so focused on the commission and on member states, but this is a clear sign that at least in the eyes of foreign actors, the European Parliament is a place that we they should influence or attempt, allegedly, to influence to their advantage. Because especially one thing I should have mentioned at the top is it's not just that this is focused on the socialists and Democrats. This is also very much focused on the subcommittee for human rights inside the European Parliament. Another thing you really can't make up. And this is 
a record the parliament and the EU as a whole has been very proud of. The respect for human rights is in the treaties. And to have this particular body involved so deeply in this alleged scheme, I think that shows that there is a level of maturation and that those foreign actors see this as a place where they can try to influence the decisions that are coming out of there. Before we close this topic, I do want to say, I think it's important for us to say that Qatar, Morocco, the vice president for the European Parliament, Kylie, who's been in prison since December, all deny wrongdoing. The investigation continues and there are currently requests to lift more of the MEP's immunity. So there'll be a lot to watch for this topic. But for now, we're going to move from the soft corruption to hard power and discuss some, uh, some issues of tanks. Yeah. So the issue of tanks has been sort of front and center in the transatlantic security debate now for months. Uh, and this comes about because Ukrainians have been uh, asking for main battle tanks. And at the be beginning of this year, uh, so in, in the first few days of 2023, there was a big announcement by uh, the French government, by the United States uh, and Germany, which was actually a joint statement, announcing they were going to all be providing tanks or tank-like vehicles or infantry fighting vehicles or basically things with armor that can shoot other things. And this led to this big debate over what is a tank? Does a Bradley infantry fighting vehicle count as quote-unquote a tank? So can I ask, in this debate, please help us figure out what is the ivory tower debate around what defines a tank and what actually matters for this entire fight? And the, the whole purpose of this debate is not because it actually matters what your sort of distinction between a tank and an infantry riding vehicle. Of course, there is a distinction and it, and it matters to, to military professionals. But this was actually a political issue. One that was at the heart of the German assistance debate over whether to provide, quote unquote, tanks to Ukraine. This has really come about because the German government has something called Leopard 2 tanks, uh, as well as there's about uh, roughly more than a thousand of Leopard 2 tanks that are, uh, are, are held by European countries. And so this, the Leopard 2 is probably a much better tank for Ukraine to receive than the M1A1 uh, Abrams tank, which is the main U.S. battle tank, uh, because the M1 Abrams you know, basically uses jet fuel. It's, it's much more logistically difficult. It's much heavier. And so the Leopard 2 has been seen by think tank analysts and, and others that this is the, the right tank for Ukraine. There was a really influential report from our friends at the European Council on Foreign Relations in September called the Leopard 2 Plan, which sort of helped set off this, this conversation. But essentially what we got here is then, you know, whether providing a Bradley infantry fighting vehicle would be enough for the uh, for Olaf Scholz and the German defense ministry to say, OK, well, now others are providing tanks tanks, quote unquote tanks. So now we can. So this is actually not a debate about what, whether an infantry fighting vehicle is a tank. It's just a, a political discussion of whether there's any escalatory risk for Germany in providing a tank uh, one the Americans are providing infantry fighting vehicles. So it's a ridiculous discussion <laughs> in many respects, because the moment you're providing a vehicle that shoots at Russians, you are providing a lethal system that is killing Russians. So to me, this whole debate is a little bit tripping over itself. Yeah, that's the question I have. It's ultimately, what is the goal here of providing this equipment to Ukraine? What does Ukraine want to do with it? And are we there to back that goal? Right. And I think that is the, the fundamental question. But what 
happens here, I'm going to sort of project how I sort of see this conversation happening within Berlin. And I'm going to kind of use from my experience back in the State Department after 2014, when we were debating whether to provide Javelin missiles to the Ukrainian forces when the Russians invaded Ukraine the first time. And Javelin are these anti-tank weapons uh, that are quite lethal or quite useful and effective uh, in the early stages of this of this current conflict. But what would happen is the the in the, this is during the Obama administration, um, there would be Russian tanks that we were worried we're going to pour over the border. There would be meetings that were called, you know, from from the White House and others. You know, can we get them javelin? And we would say yes, we can, but it's going to take like three months. And the White House would be like, but the tanks are there now. What do we do? And we're like, well, it'll take three months. That's how long it will take. And then there would be this concern. If you provide that weapon system, would the Russians escalate further? And there was a real escalatory concern. I think was overrated, but there was a legitimate concern that if you provided lethal systems, maybe they'd come over the border. But is that similar to today's concern? I don't think so, but I think the, the bureaucratic debate is because what happened then is that then three months would go by. We wouldn't have provided javelin. It would The threat from Russia would be back, and the White House would be like, can we provide them javelins? And we would say yes, but it will take three months. Then three months would go by, and we have the same conversation. And eventually what happens is the bureaucracy decides, so those down there are sort of working level, it's not worth pushing this because the decision's already been made. So Olaf Scholz and the German chancellor made a decision not to send tanks unless someone else provided tanks. So the decision was made. There was no point in pushing it, despite folks on Twitter banging their heads against the wall. What bureaucrats don't like to do is waste their time again and again and again. So then the question, is it a tank or not, is really just about the optics and the politics. And I think that's why we're about to see a shift. So what happens now that this debate is still somewhat ongoing, but there's a lot more public push from several allies to provide this equipment. So I think what we're seeing now is that we're going to see a real shift in Germany because the UK has now said that it was providing a, a main battle tank. And we should be clear here that we have been providing Ukraine tanks, or we as the collective alliance have been providing tanks, but we've been providing old Soviet tanks that are held by Eastern European countries. But the UK has, has said it was going to provide a few or a handful of its Challenger main battle tanks. Uh, Poland then said it would send some of its Leopard 2s, but it needs uh, German permission in order to do that. But so the pressure is built. Now a country the U like the UK is providing something that is a main battle tank. The US and France are also providing infantry fighting vehicles, which is close enough. And we have just seen the resignation this week of the German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht. And I think that was a, a clear sign that there's going to be a bit of a pivot uh, within Berlin on this issue. In fact, there was a story in Bloomberg that said that Christine Lambrecht, when she met with uh, Secretary Austin, or she was planning on meeting with Secretary Austin this week ahead of a big meeting at Ramstein Air Base, where they're going to talk or allies get together to talk about assistance to Ukraine, that a decision was coming on the tanks and it was likely going to lead to the release. Well, there's now a new defense minister. His name is Boris Pistorius. And my guess is that you are sort of handing him a clear win in his first few days in office to announce that Germany will indeed be providing. So he is unlikely to reverse that decision. I think he's very unlikely to reverse it. And what's clear is what happened. what's happened is that a political decision has been triggered within the German chancellery. And I think this whole debate really is about 
the shift that is happening within Germany when it comes to security and defense policy and this real paradigm shift that they are having to go through over how they operate from a country that was very adverse to military force, to thinking about war, to thinking about conflict, to one now mired and deeply involved in a major conventional war in Europe. And this is a good segue to our interview this week with Sophia Besch, who is widely known in the think tank world. She is now a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And her research focuses on European foreign and defense policy and is one of the sort of top German security analysts. And will give us real insight into the German conversation about all things foreign and security policy. And before we move on to that interview, we do want to flag that we recorded with Sophia before Minister Lambrecht left her post as Minister of Defense. Today we're focusing on Germany's much-touted Zeitenwende. On February 27th, just days following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz spoke to Parliament and declared a historical turning point, or Zeitenwende. Security and defense would become a priority of the new government, and they announced a new $100 billion fund to invest in defense. Today we want to discuss the Zeitenwende. How significant a shift has occurred in Germany? How is the Zeitenwende being implemented? And there's no better guest to discuss this topic than Sophia Besch. Sophia is currently a fellow with the Europe program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace right across the road on Mass Ave, where she focuses on European foreign and defense policy. Sophia, thanks for so much for joining us today. Thanks, Max. I'm delighted to be here. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, where were you when Olaf Scholz gave this speech and what was your reaction? Wow, this is like the Zeitenwende moon landing. Kennedy <laughs> <laughs> <he> gets shot. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting, actually. I was in Ghana, in Accra, visiting my parents who live there. And we had been on a two-day weekend trip without our phones. I came back on Sunday, which is when uh, Olaf Scholz gave that speech and opened my phone to just an onslaught of messages and press requests and <laughs> just messages from friends also trying to make sense of what had just happened, this massive shift that Scholz had announced. And yeah, it was one of those moments where as someone who's been thinking about and talking about and wishing for more to happen on the front of German defense policy, uh, yeah, it felt big. We knew immediately it was a big thing. Well, since it's such a big shift, my understanding is the term means basically a turning point or a time turn. Walk us through the basic concept. What does it mean and how did it come about? Zeitenwende means changing of the times. And I think that's a good way to get into this because really what Olaf Scholz was doing in that speech was uh, describing what he saw and then drawing conclusions from that. He saw that the world was changing and his line was, if the world changes, then our politics have to change. For him, this world changed. And for, I think, the majority of Germans was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so then he announced changes in three big baskets, really, uh, on Russia policy, on energy policy and on defense policy. And they were quite specific and concrete. So on defense policy, he announced that Germany would continue to participate in nuclear sharing and buy the F-35s for that, that we would uh, send weapons to Ukraine, which had before then been a real taboo, sending weapons to a conflict zone, that we would spend 2% on defense and that we would do that through a special fund, the 100 billion special fund, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in this episode. On energy policy, uh, it was all about alleviating the dependence on Russia. And then on Russia policy, it was 
the acknowledgement that what had previously been German policy, which is the idea of forming a European security architecture with Russia, was no longer an option, that now we had to form a European security architecture against Russia, basically. So many taboos. I think we really have to just take a moment to appreciate how momentous this shift was at the time because of these domestic taboos on arms exports and defense spending, as I had said, but also just the German relationship with Russia, the German relationship with military force. I don't think you would have found many people who would have accepted that military power, military force is still relevant in international politics in Europe today before this invasion. So, yeah, it was it was a really big, big speech. Yeah, part of the reason why I asked where were you when he announced it, because there wasn't a lot of coordination with his party or with his coalition. This seemed that Schultz was really just going out on a limb and declaring that there's, there is this new historical turning point, which meant that he had to sort of build a lot of support for it after announcing it. And I guess how has that gone? How has he gained support or has he gained support from his government, from the German public? Could you maybe walk us through how, how the implementation has sort of worked? I think it's remarkable that in the first instance, there was a lot of support throughout political party spectrum, but also in the broader public, there was support for these measures, which I think was a surprise to many who would have you know, describe the German public as famously pacifistic and, and averse to all of this and, and Russia friendly. So the shock that Olaf Scholz felt was clearly also felt by the broader public. And so there was a lot of initial support. When it comes to his government, which is this three-party coalition between the Greens, the Social Democrats and uh, the Liberals, this is not the project that they would have picked, I don't think. They had a different agenda. They had just come into power a couple months before. And their three big things were the three Ds, right? Digitalization, demographic change, and decarbonization. And some of that we're doing with this, particularly, I think, on the energy piece. Energy independence from Russia, energy independence from fossil fuels is, is clearly boosting efforts for decarbonization as well. But, you know, the Greens, the Social Democrats, uh, they have a difficult relationship with military power. The Social Democrats always had a close relationship with Russia. This has really shown also the responses to his speech, the differences between the three coalition partners, right, where the Greens take a much more human rights based approach to foreign policy and so respond quite easily to this pushback against authoritarian governments, whereas the Social Democrats had a bit more catching up to do in terms of their relationship with Russia. We're seeing that now, though. We're seeing that there's a reckoning within the party that especially younger members of the party are leading the charge on ending the, the romance with Russia. But it's been difficult conversation for the past few months, difficult conversations on suddenly spending this much money on defense. And at a time when, as we all know, there's an energy crisis, the financial situation is tough after the pandemic and going into this winter, there's a lot of political pressure. But there's also, I think, pressure to deliver. In the initial days and, and weeks after this speech, there was a lot of support for the measures that he has announced. And uh, so now this is the project that the government will be uh, held accountable for and, and that their success will be measured by, I think. Well, speaking of pressure to deliver, in practice, what has been delivered so far? I feel like that's the big question mark right now, a lot of words. But in practice, what are we seeing? On the specific things, and I think it's really important to get the nuance clear, on the specific things that Olaf Scholz has announced, a lot of those have happened. <laughs> we have exported weapon systems to Ukraine. The energy independence movement is really advancing super, super quickly. 
I think that the conversation on Russia has changed. But your question implies, and we all know, that there isn't an unequivocal positive conversation about what has been uh, done so far and about the implementation of Zeitemann. And there's a few different strands of, of criticism um, that target different problems with the implementation of Zeitemann. One is, I think, about the basic assumption of Olaf Scholz's speech, which was that the world has changed And there's lots of Europeans, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, who will say the world hasn't changed, right? The world has been this for a while, and we've been telling you for a while. And they just don't accept <laughs> that now Germany gets a fresh slate, you know, a, a clean slate and a fresh beginning to now do all these measures. There's a lot of resentment over previous German policy mistakes, um, I think particularly when it comes to energy, but also this idea of keeping Russia involved in these multilateral formats like the Minsk and the Normandy format, um, the hope that you could change Russia through close involvement through trade. So that's one strand of criticism. There's also criticism of communications by the government. I think that's at That's gotten a bit better, but Schultz in the beginning found it quite difficult, I think, to say clearly what he was going to do and why he was going to do that after this initial speech. Now he's communicating much more. Um, you know, he's recently published an op-ed in Foreign Affairs, and he's clearly making an effort to, to explain himself a bit more. And then there's the criticism that targets uh, the substance of the imp implementation and how it's being done. There's a couple of different points here, I think, particularly on defense, which I guess we're more, most interested in in this conversation. We're running into what are very stereotypically German problems of bureaucracy, of uh, really long political processes, of a procurement system that is in dire need of reform, has been in dire need of reform for a long time. And so when, you know, the 100 billion were announced in February, we've only at the end of 2022 had the actual budgetary decision to spend the money. The fund has had to be adjusted for inflation. There was lots of back and forth over what could actually be bought with it. Turns out that really what we're buying with this money are mostly things that we had long promised we would buy anyway, but we never actually had the money for. So There's a gap between rhetoric on the one hand, Olaf Scholz saying that Germany wants to become a security guarantor for Europe, he wants to build the strongest European military, and then just this realization that the Bundeswehr had been in such a desolate state that it's going to take a lot of money to even just catch up. And then there's a final strand of criticism, which I think comes from people who are ambitious for Germany and who would like uh, Germany to translate some of the lessons that it has learned from the Zeitenwende Russia piece to, for instance, its policy vis-a-vis -vis China, who are getting impatient with the broader uh, German strategic debate beyond just the measures that were announced in February. I've been making a, a, an analogy that I, I like. I think it's in some ways apt that the German military is a bit like our Amtrak system, <laughs> where we passed a, a, a massive infrastructure bill, like $60 billion, dollars, I think roughly, is going to Amtrak. And I'm, we're going to get fast trains between New York and DC. And then Amtrak comes back and says, well, no, we're just going to fix everything because everything is on the ver everything is broken or on the verge of breaking. Tunnels may collapse any moment. And it strikes me as sort of similar. 
that Germany has a lot of hard choices when it comes to what to invest in in terms of its military, increasing readiness or buying new weapon systems for the future. How is it making these sort of trade-offs between just kind of fixing what's broken versus buying new systems? And then you add this other third element, which is giving away old systems to Ukraine, who is in desperate need of a fight, which could impact negatively impact the readiness of, of the German military. How is it balancing this? And, you know, it strikes me that's an area where there's potentially a lot of criticism of the German defense bureaucracy. For sure. Yeah, that's a, it's a great metaphor. <laughs> um, I think it, it works pretty well. And it's also a reminder that this isn't just a German problem, right? We see this in American public infrastructure, but also in other countries' uh, defense budgets before this war in Europe. There was decades of underinvestment in uh, defense in Europe. We're only just now catching up with the the downfall of the economic crisis in 2007 and 2008, right? This huge European armament effort. It's not just Germany. Uh, everyone else is also catching up. That being said, expectations of Germany are higher, I think justifiably higher because of its position in Europe um, and because of this, this grand announcement. Prioritization is incredibly important. I think from... When you look at what the money is currently allocated to, what we're mostly doing is filling gaps, right? It's mostly about resupplying stocks and, and filling up our arsenals, which are, as you say, rightly, partly empty because we haven't invested in them and partly emptying out because we are sending weapon systems uh, to Ukraine. There's a couple of political projects like FCAS, for example, the Future Combat Aircraft System with France, which has political priority as a European defense capability project, which it looks a bit unusual in the list of other projects because it's a development project and this, uh, the site and the budget is supposed to go into uh, procurement projects mostly, but there's clearly a political priority to get FCAS going. Another one is the F-35s, right? Buying the F-35s for nuclear sharing. That was a political priority. It was immediately cl clear that money was going to go into that. There are some things that aren't on the special budget list, like ammunition, for example, which is a huge priority, which uh, around 20 to 40 billion euros are going to have to go into restocking German ammunition effort. And this brings me to, which is maybe worth saying, and I don't want to get into the weeds of German budgeting too much, but this special fund is a five-year special fund that is distinct from the German defense budget, the regular defense budget, which is frozen at about 1.5% for the next few years, which has to do with German domestic politics and debt conversations. After the five years of this special fund, which we're using to get to 2%, by the way, not in 2022 and not in 2023, but hopefully in 2024, we will get to 2%. When that runs out, we don't know what the next government is going to decide in terms of the regular defense budget. And so that is a problem just in terms of sustainable long-term planning of procurement decisions, because we don't actually know after this government leaves office where defense spending will be. Well, and just to clarify, 2%, because we're all European nerds here, but when you say 2%, you mean 2% of spending on defense. Exactly, which also won't win Germany any prices considering that NATO is currently in the Looking conversation three. around 3%. So. <laughs> yeah, I think Germany committed in, what was it, in 2014 to get to 2% by 2024. So they'll hit their 2014 goal. <laughs> there but. you go. Well, I'd like to take us a little bit broader. We're going to go in concentric circles. You mentioned France already. How do you feel this 
new policy jives with French views on European security. At first glance, it seemed to me like it could bring more convergence between the two. But I feel like in the last few months, we've seen that maybe that's just on the surface. So that's a fascinating question. Um, and the Franco-German piece is always important when we're talking about European defense, arguably becoming a bit less important. I think right now there are other partnerships that matter perhaps more, but it still is a crucial motor to get anything done in Europe. Um, is France and Germany compromising? It was a welcome announcement, I think, for all of Europe that Germany was going to invest more in defense, including for France. The question is, what are you, where's the money going, right? <laughs> And I think Paris is quite critical of what they're seeing right now from Berlin, which is prioritizing um, buying off the shelf from the United States, prioritizing fulfilling NATO commitments, and not really showing an ambition for EU defense industrial policy and EU-led capability projects, which has obviously long been a, a French priority. So there's a little bit of tension over that. There's tension over AFCAS and the ground combat system, which, you know, that's nothing new, but there's lots of industrial jealousy over leadership between the two countries still. And there's broader tension also over China policy, energy policy. I think it's important to say that it's just important to remember that this government is still, the government in Berlin is still relatively new. There's a craft aspect to all of this, a consultation aspect to all of this. Not everyone in the current administration has all the contacts yet in Paris and Brussels that are necessary. I think we're building that. There's a realization on both sides that we that both sides need to invest in that relationship. And I think we're seeing that now after some initial stumbles. But perhaps a good example of this is when you look at the European Sky Shield, which is a, a German initiative that Berlin proposed in the margins of the NATO um, meeting in, I think, October or September. It's a really good idea to um, assemble a, a, a European missile defense shield, but France is not a member of this initiative, which brings together, I think, 14 NATO allies. Neither is Poland. And France has a problem with the fact that the initiative builds on US and Israeli bought capabilities and that it apparently wasn't consulted. So this is sort of the perfect bow, <laughs> the perfect uh, example of, of the, the tension between Paris and Berlin. Germany is expected to adopt a new national security strategy. What are your expectations for that? And in what place will Europe play in, in that national security strategy? So it's our first ever national security strategy. And it sets out to do a lot, which isn't always a good thing. <laughs> you said, uh, sorry, you said first ever? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which in itself, that's great. Yeah, um, must be odd to U.S. listeners as well. We're just <laughs> eagerly waiting for it every year. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good thing that this is happening. And that was decided before Zeit and Wende. The government had decided it wanted to do this. They're having to, of course, it's happening as the war and as this conversation on defense is developing in Germany. It's happening w with a government that set out with, I'd say, a different agenda, focusing on, on feminist foreign policy, focusing on the global south. And now it has to bring all of this together and consolidate all of this and ideally have, you know, practical implications and budgetary implications that can be derived from it. And also ideally would include a bit on reforming our decision-making infrastructure on security and defense. Uh, I don't think it will deliver on all of that. I think 
we're basically setting ourselves up for a disappointment if we're thinking that this national security strategy is finally going to, quote unquote, deliver Zeitenwende, whatever that means, right? I think it can usefully frame the efforts that are currently undergoing. It's probably a good indicator of what the government can agree on between these three different parties. And I think it will have a significant European dimension. Because if you look at the coalition treaty, which was very legalistic German system, uh, parties in the beginning of the legislature agree on a treaty and then they check off everything on that list over the next four years. And that had a significant European dimension, uh, a European sovereignty dimension. It didn't have a whole lot in there on defense. So it's interesting to see whether they'll be able to translate their ambitions on European sovereignty into the defense space with that national security strategy. Moving further out from just Europe, let's talk a little bit about both elephants in the room, China and the US. There's a lot of conversations in Europe around, you know, do we need to pit one against the other? It feels like in Germany, we're still not moving to the point where it is one against the other. Is this policy that's very focused on Russia allowing in a way or casually letting Berlin keep going on the current policy on China, which other parts of Europe, but also in Washington, uh, there are a lot of voices who are concerned about things like the visit to Beijing that Schultz did. It's a really big question, so I'll try to, to do it justice. So first of all, I think just on your general comments on where Europe is on China, I don't think that in Germany you could say that anyone really considers an equidistant positioning between the US and China, right? But there is a sense of a third way for Europe, one that is a bit independent of the United States, and that is probably more often than not aligned with where Washington is going, but self-determined, right? So just on, on the generals of the, the China relationship. There is, and I briefly mentioned this earlier, a push from many observers and parts of the government, particularly the Green Party, to translate the lessons that we have learned from our failed approach to Russia to our approach to China, right? And I think it's fair to say that, you know, if we have a problem with dependency on Russia, we have a bigger problem with dependencies on China, right? Um, economic dependencies from a German point of view. And the German conversation on China has become significantly more hawkish in recent years. I think particularly from 2019 on, China played its cards really badly in Europe over sanctions and, and throughout COVID. There was certainly uh, an understanding in Europe where the U.S. is going on China and a willingness to walk alongside that. And there's also, as I said, with the liberals and the Greens in government, a greater focus on human rights. And so... In the coalition treaty, um, there's quite a big chapter on China that uses quite hawkish language that talks about Taiwan, that talks about human rights. That being said, there is, I think, a sense in the chancellery and uh, among German industry that, or parts of German industry, I should say, that we are now in a conflict with Russia and in a real economic squeeze and that we can't afford tensions with China and economic tensions with China particularly. And then there's the other side of the argument that says what I just summed up, basically, that now is exactly the time <laughs> that we should um, distance ourselves to prevent this um, dependency from becoming a problem in the future. I'd be reluctant to go one way or the other on where Germany is moving on China right now, because I think it's an ongoing conversation. You mentioned the trip to Beijing, which was really criticized, I think, in, in Europe and in the United States. Not, I would 
argue because Scholz went to Beijing, because it's fair that he would want to meet with Xi, but because he took a business delegation and he took an all German business delegation, I think it was a missed opportunity for him to signal that he wants to shape a European approach to China, that he wants to take over from Merkel in shaping that European approach, which is, I think, one of her main legacies and work with, uh, for instance, French President Emmanuel Macron on that. So that was a missed opportunity, followed up immediately by, you know, uh, this debate over Chinese investment in the Hamburg Harbor which Scholz pushed through against the resistance of some in his government or most of his government, I should say, and uh, against criticism from European partners like Italy, for example, that had previously been criticized for uh, its close ties to, to China and has changed policy since then. But we've also seen pushback against a, a takeover of a chip factory. We've, we've seen a greater effort from the economics ministry, which is led by a green politician, to secure our supply chains, to secure our critical infrastructure. It's an ongoing conversation on China. It's an ongoing debate. And there is, I think, um, a question over how much to link this to Zeitenwende. And just because I'm not in the habit of defending the government, but I would just say that we are sometimes in these conversations at a point where Zeitenwende is whatever people would like it to be, right? It's whatever pet project you always wanted Germany to do on foreign and defense policy. And if they're not doing that, then Zeitenwende has failed. So I would just maybe caution against that and say that the China piece is certainly related, but not uh, directly linked to what Scholz announced in February. So one final question. So let's look into the crystal ball five years from now, 10 years from now. How is the, the Schultz speech on February 27th viewed? Is the German military stronger? Or do we view Germany now as one of the main military powers in Europe or has not much changed? I... Don't think that five years from now, uh, we will look back at this and say nothing has changed. I think that tectonic plates are shifting in Germany. It's just slow and it's frustratingly slow. And we all wish the effort had begun sooner, but they are changing. And I think the big things for me is our relationship with Russia, which has really fundamentally shifted. And that shift can last because our energy dependence on Russia has shifted. And I don't think that we will go back on that. Of course, if you start investing money, your armed forces are going to become more effective. And if that means just in quotation marks that in 2027 or whenever Germany will be able to fulfill the commitments it made to the NATO alliance, then to me, that's a win. <laughs> you know, that is not the path that we were on uh, before this speech. Now, Whatever that means to be the strongest military in Europe and to be a European security guarantor, again, I have my doubts that this is really where we're headed. But still, I think Zeitenwende is, is here to stay. And these changes are both cultural, political, ideological and, and material. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for those insights. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Europhile. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. For more expert analysis on other foreign policy topics, visit csis.org slash podcasts.